Minds of Peak show where the English language cannot fully capture the depth and complexity of our thoughts. I'm your host, the best podcast host of Egg Time, Brie Rohde, and who is with me here today? I'm Helen Mark, the human equivalent of the 100 emoji. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Helen is here with me today. We are, I know I said in the season one finale that we're doing fewer TV shows than before, but we're opening the first season with a TV show because that's the peak show that you've come to love and expect. We're discussing Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the Mike Sure created sitcom, formerly of Fox, then NBC, concluded in 2021 after eight seasons. It's a cop show. <laughs> so uh, thus uh, subject to a lot of fairly insightful discourse. And I have to say, I think, Part of the reason I have as big a following on Twitter as I do is because I've been a like somewhat mo- moderately visible voice in that discourse because I wrote um, an essay about uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, about how it is a fantasy world. It was a good essay. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, I invited Helen here because... Um, you know, she loves a good essay. She loves a good discourse. She loves um, bisexual content with even even before Rosa canonically came out. I'd say Brooklyn Nine-Nine was kind of like beloved by bisexuals everywhere. It's just got a bisexual um, vibe. Um, absolutely. Other than all the cops. But, but uh... <laughs> yeah, if you could just ignore the entire setting of the show. Um, but Helen, you are also, you are the better half of Friend of the Show Liz on the show, Real Good Pros. Uh, and I wanted, uh, we've now had Liz technically on three times, so it was high time that we give uh, we give some love to Helen, who started Real Good Pros. Tell me about Real Good Pros. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're now in our fourth season which continues to be the craziest thing to me we actually just recorded our 100th episode uh if you don't count our bonus episodes which i do not uh and that's uh i'm i'm currently in the hell of editing five different voices together so wow it's uh it's it's a whole thing you know what game i don't like what is that weird clicking sound in the background and which audio track is it coming from um, oh yeah but uh in terms of the show yeah we it got started with me uh and my friends mel and yancina uh about four years ago um mel was like a lifelong leafs fan yancina and i were a little bit newer to the whole thing and we thought that starting a podcast would be fun and so the first season was recorded like weekly at mel's house we'd get up at like eight and trek over there on the ttc uh, and just uh, record in her basement. And then both of them had to drop out for the second season. And Liz was actually like a listener. Like we'd just met over Twitter and she was just like, she'd always send in really funny questions. We'd met her in person uh, just recently. And I was like, Liz was great vibes. I wonder if Liz wants to join me. And she's been with me ever since. And every season has been a COVID season with Liz, but <laughs> despite that, it's been a really good time. It has. I think Real Good Pros is like just kind of my happy podcast. Um, I love listening to it in the car, especially. Um, it's actually been the easiest way to catch my husband up on um, on hockey because he, being uh, an immigrant to Canada, is not like biologically. He's he's an immigrant from the UK. <laughs> so he's biologically predisposed to liking soccer or football. Um, 
And uh, it's actually Real Good Prose has helped him learn about the game and the narrative at the same time, which is great. <laughs> See, I'm not a native Canadian, but I, I am Slavic. So either way. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, I, Real Good Prose is amazing, fantastic. I can't say enough good things about it. And I would encourage Aww. all our listeners um, even if you are not like a hockey or Leafs fan, like I, um, friend of the show Maggie had made a joke about, uh, you know how uh, the the peak show crew is going to get her into hockey, and I think uh, I think we're doing it. So, yeah. um, I I also and I think this will appeal to Liz as well because Liz is a big fan of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I know how much she loves the Charlie and Mac, you know, staring at each other from across the restaurant meme. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the moment when you and I finally met in person. <laughs> um, which was, you know, Helen and I, dear listeners, had been had been moots for uh, probably about a year at that point. And I was in the coffee shop by my old office. Which was right at the end of my old street. Yeah, it was my favorite coffee shop. Somehow this is our first time. And I just like, and to be honest, what was going through my head is, that is definitely Helen. There's no question in my mind. The question is, how much of a like a weirdo do I look if I like wave to her? <laughs> so it's so, a good thing yeah. that I like like facilitated. Yes, you were braver things. than me. Yeah. Oh. And and now we talk hockey, we talk TV, we talk queer stuff. It's it's a great it's a great dynamic. Um now, uh, a tradition we have on Peak Show is changing a little bit. Last season, I uh, used to ask guests, when did you peak? Um, and this was largely founded in cynicism because I thought that everyone would be like, oh, I peaked in high school or I peaked in college. But, or, and then everyone was very positive and they're like, I'm peaking right now. Um, and <laughs> good for you if you're peaking right now. <laughs> Great for you. Um, but to be honest, one of my favorite answers was from friend of the show, Mint. And by the way, friends, Mint is coming back for a season two episode on David Fincher. You don't want to miss it. Uh, but Mint said that they peaked when they were like drunkenly describing the plot and relationships and various storylines of the OC to their friends on a whiteboard. And that was honestly kind of what I had pictured from the beginning with that question of when did you peak? So the best way to rephrase that is, what is a moment in your life that was peak Helen? <laughs> so I had been racking my brain to answer this question since you sent me the, uh, the doc. And somehow, miracle of miracles, the moment came yesterday. So peak Helen was actually just reached less than 24 hours ago uh, when I discovered that, uh, so to, as a prelude, my girlfriend and I just got cats. We got two uh, kittens and uh, it's been about a month. And last week we got them um, a laser pointer, which they're very obsessed with. And uh, so peak Helen was me having the thought yesterday, I bet I could get Freddy to jump against the light switch and turn the light on in here. <laughs> and not only did I manage that, but then I got him to turn it off. So now we have a remote control light switch in the living room as long as one of the cats is in there. Wow. Um, you know what? That is, I think, kind of pertinent to... Um to what we're talking about because that seems like such a cold open from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> that so seems like something they would do. Um, so uh, we always start with our personal history with the show. So can you tell me a little bit about when you started watching? Like, did you watch along with it as it aired? Did you 
you know, do like most of us good Canadians do and binge it between seasons. That was, uh, I was much more of a binger between seasons. So I couldn't remember exactly what season I started with. I know it was an early one. It was first or second, but uh, my best friend Q had been watching it and just like said like, oh, I think you'd like this. And we immediately binged like, most of season one together and then I kept going on my own and I was just like I was immediately hooked the the humor of it was very much in in line with the kind of like I I guess whimsy and uh kind of the the element of surprise of a lot of the punchlines uh on that show really gets me every time it still Mm -hmm. does uh but uh yeah I was immediately hooked and uh I watched as much of it as was available at the time i do not know how much that was but uh after that it was like between seasons i would try to catch up whenever i could and uh then uh between season five and six i just kind of uh, uh fell off and then i managed to watch like one episode of season six and and no more of it and actually when you asked me to be on this show i uh, <laughs> i uh started from the beginning to remind myself watch as much of it as I could and then today watched all of season eight or almost all of season eight without having watched seasons all of season six or seven so it was a interesting jump in tone I gotta say (laughs) it was an experience yeah the fox to nbc shift is crazy because like the writing staff didn't change much but the, the, we'll get into that but um so yeah i was introduced mainly to brooklyn 99 through tumblr gifs mm. i know i don't want to oh, rehash no. this discourse again i say gif i'm sorry I- <laughs> uh, you know you know i really love toys r us and it's uh, and it's mascot geffrey the giraffe um so <laughs> Uh, no, I was I was introduced through Tumblr. I think it very specifically the one I saw the most often was Andy Samberg and screaming while playing the guitar. And honestly, because Andy Samberg is like, I didn't realize because I don't know much about cops. Like, I didn't realize that detectives usually are in plain clothes and not wearing, not in uniform. And so because you rarely saw through these various gifs and cliffs much indication that they were cops, I did not realize it was a cop show. I had no idea. I could never even remember the name of the show. I was like, oh, that show that Andy Samberg's on. Um, And (laughs) I would see like some of like little dialogues between him and um, him and Santiago and stuff. And I had really, truly no idea it was a cop show. So I just thought it was Andy Samberg being obnoxious in a hoodie. Um, so, uh, which it kind of is. Can I, um, can I ask, uh, I mean, you say you didn't remember the, the name of the show when you did remember the name of the show, what did you think that was? Like, what did you take away from Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a, a name? The thing is like the second I did kind of internalize the name of the show. I figured it was about a police precinct. However, I was also confused because wouldn't it be the 99th precinct of New York and not Brooklyn because it's part of the NYPD. So I'm, I, my brain is just as pedantic as my outward personality. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I kind of like, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. But, um, yeah, it took me a while to make that connection. Cause like, also I knew there was a show named Brooklyn nine, nine. I did not know that was the show with Andy Samberg and ah. Harry Cruz that I was always seeing GIFs of. Um, so yeah, I finally like 
thought, okay, these are enough good jokes. I'm going to check it out. And it was between the third and fourth season. Um, and from there, um, so yeah, I caught up on everything up to the third season finale because that was what was on Netflix Canada. From there, I actually did watch it week by week. Um, when I was living in Toronto, um, we had an antenna and a very, very clear view of the CN Tower. Um, so you could get conventional basic cable networks over the air for free. So that was nice. It was like appointment TV viewing for me. Um, I never really fell out of it. Um, it's safe to say, yeah, but like I probably gave people the impression that I wasn't a fan of it anymore with that essay. Um, and to be honest, like I, I did kind of like, should I stop watching? Am I a huge hypocrite if I built all this online clout off of, you know, calling out the propaganda? And then that was like... Which it is. And then, it absolutely is. But then that was... If you look at when I wrote that, that was December 2019. Uh, after COVID hit, what the fuck else was I going to do? Not watch <laughs> TV? Like, um, and so, like, I want to avoid going down too much of the propaganda rabbit hole because it's all over these notes. Um, but trust me, it's, it's going to play a big part in this episode, so... We're getting into the history section, uh, a.k.a. Brie charmingly paraphrasing Wikipedia. So, <laughs> Helen, you can add in your old Helen Spice anytime you want. I didn't know most of this, first of all. Really? Yeah, I, ah, I've never um, gone down the rabbit hole of, like, knowing anything about this show. <laughs> Once a media reporter, always a media reporter. I will say that. Um, so, yeah, Mike Schur, Harvard grad. Um, I know it's hard to believe an NBC sitcom written by Harvard grads. Um <laughs> He, uh, we mentioned him a lot in our Parks and Rec and probably our office episode. He co-created the show with Dan Gore. And the idea was always uh, police. It, he, you know, he'd done the workplace comedy thing before. He wanted to set in a police precinct because the last three decades had lacked uh, police TV shows in a particular comedic setting that hadn't really been done since Barney Miller, which I believe was 78. So it was developed through Universal Television, um, with, as in NBC Universal. So even though Universal produced it, NBC didn't want it, which I think is kind of funny because it's so NBC to me. I don't know what they didn't like about it, but it was picked up by Fox, picked up for 13 episodes, nearly doubled to 22 for season one. Total viewers, including DVR, was 4.8 million, which is really modest but for a cheap show that's not immediately cancel worthy i guess so that's good and second season grew to 4.87 million um it did slide down in the rankings it went from 113th uh down from 98th from then on it continued to essentially slowly bleed viewers and by its fifth and final season on fox it was at 2.71 million viewers per episode and 161st in the rankings that would be considered a pretty good show in canada but in the U.S., that is terrible. Um, so it was then canceled in May of 2018. Within something like 24 hours, it had been picked up by NBC. Um, there was a massive social media push for renewal. And Helen, I got to ask, were you kind of actively concerned about the fate of Brooklyn Nine-Nine at the time it was canceled? Because even I remember being like really mad. Oh, yeah. 100%. I was, uh, I was, I wasn't even mad necessarily I was just like bummed I still thought it was really funny I was still actively watching and you know I've I've been down the whole thing before with community I was also just worried about the the I, I guess my thing was I was bummed about being it being canceled but uh, all of the somebody else picked this show up uh calls were something that I was concerned about, not because I, you know, because it, it 
often doesn't go well. The tone changes, oh, yeah. the writers change, the like the feel of it changes. It just sometimes it's just too much time in between. Mm-hmm. Um a thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that different networks have different rules about act breaks. And I think the reason why we don't know that firsthand as Canadians is because most of the shows we watch in Canada are pickups from various different networks. So yeah. we don't know that something like four episodes, like, uh, f- you know, some networks had recently changed and now there's four episode breaks in a 30 minutes uh, episode, which is insane. Um, I had just done in October a big rewatch of all the Treehouse of Horror episodes of The Simpsons, and those don't really work very well anymore now that you have more because it used to be three acts. Right. Um, so that was a thing that like it's small, but it really changes the pacing of an episode. Oh, 100%. Um, and in comedy, paces everything. Um, I was I was really bummed as well because it was like, oh man, I finally have this like new show that I'm actually watching along where I became like a grumpy little M actually person. And I, I hate that I became this person was that a lot of people, you know, I was, I was on Tumblr at the time and a lot of people seemed convinced that it was canceled because of homophobia. And I understand the sensitivity about that, but it's like, um, here's another thing a lot of people probably don't know is very inside baseball. Usually around the sixth season of a show is when a lot of actors and crews renegotiate their contracts as they should, because, you know, workers, uh, workers should get paid. But as a network around the sixth, fifth through seventh season of the show is usually when, you know, a show is about to get much more expensive to produce. And this show was bleeding viewers. So it was, the returns were shrinking. So yeah, of course, like it, unfortunately it made sense to cancel it i i like you i'm also not a fan of just like picking shows up because it changes it and also i'm concerned about our ability as a capital s society to just let shows die Mm. just let them die like uh i mean being a simpsons fan i've seen what happens when a show goes on for longer than it should but just like i don't you know, something like Arrested Development, I thought, ended so perfectly. And then we just, we had to bring it back. <laughs> we had to bring it back. I think especially with comedies, um, I just don't understand what's so wrong with having like, you know, three or four great seasons of a comedy. Because with like a, you know, half hour sitcom, 20, uh, really 20 minute sitcom, uh there's not much you can do past like the second or third season that doesn't involve just like a level of cartoonishness, uh, like the level of cartoonishness uh, skyrocketing like season after season. And that Mm -hmm. can be fun, but it very quickly becomes a different show. And I say this especially as someone who's just, I, I'm going to mention Community a lot because I've been rewatching it. And this was, uh, of, of all shows, Community <laughs> was the show that I have seen like the most times just like on repeat. I would literally just have a playlist of all of the first three seasons that I would play and just have it on repeat in the background of my entire life. Um, so when I talk about like, the the tonal difference from season to season of a show and what a a, a twenty minute comedy can go through, um, that's what I'm thinking of because it's mm-hmm. insane. If you look at the last episode of the third season and then loop right back around to the first episode of the first season, um, yeah, Brooklyn Nine Nine oh, yeah. didn't have that kind of insane tonal shift. 
No, but it almost went in another direction where it tried to make a lot of very special episodes, which, because uh, it tried to be like, we're the comedy that's different. We're the comedy that has character development, but um, I don't think it always pulled it off that well. Sometimes it did. Other times it really didn't. Um, by the way, also, I'm, I'm making these faces, which everyone can see because this is a video medium. Um <laughs> Because uh, if you listen to the third season or the first season finale, you know that I community is a sore spot for me because everyone keeps telling me you should do community, you should do community. And I don't want to do community because I don't want to be stuck with someone who is trying to convince me that community is a good show. Um, I actually really like the first two seasons. Um, but when you mentioned the third season, though, uh, I just think of this one parallel with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is... The third season of Community and how outlandish it gets is um, what happens when you give viewers too much of what they want. Mm. You know, we want more themed episodes. We want more paintball episodes. We want more guest stars. Bring in Giancarlo Esposito. Now we have a video game episode. Now we have this weird fried chicken thing. Um, and I think that happened a little bit with Brooklyn Nine-Nine as well of just like it became really fan service-y. Um, so that's that's my moratorium on Community Discourse. But um, yeah, so... With uh, When it was picked up on NBC, there was a little bit of a ratings boost on NBC. It was over 3 million viewers for the first time since season three, but then it went quickly down by the next season. And then production on the eighth season was suspended indefinitely during COVID. And then summer 2020 happened and the show said it scrapped most of its script and possibly even a few completed episodes um, in light of the majority of the world finally realizing that cops are bad. Um, Crazy. And in yeah. Oh, and I remember like I was still a media reporter at the time and I was reporting on the upfronts and like once a week I would have to ask um, Roger Sports and Media a question like, have you guys heard anything about Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming back? And like, we we do not know. We do not know. Because um, I real I actually thought it wasn't going to come back. I thought they were going to say fuck it. Because do you know how expensive it is to throw out two completed episodes? Like... I, I cannot imagine the the kind of like havoc that would wreak on your budget, but also just like, mm-hmm. did we need more Brooklyn Nine Nine? You know, I, I I really think it thought we're gonna come in and help. And I remember there were so <laughs> many memes about like we're just we we just all work for the postal service now. <laughs> we're not cops <laughs> anymore. But no, February twenty twenty one, NBC confirmed what we all knew in our hearts to be true, that the eighth season would be its last and that the premiere would be delayed until August twelfth. So it was more than a year since it had last aired. Uh, NBC basically dumped the final ten episodes two at a time. So over the course of a month, the last season of Brooklyn Nine Nine started and ended. Uh, so yeah, Gore and Sher, which when I look at this gore and sure, they sound like Dr. Seuss characters or something. They served as showrunners all throughout. Um, many did note a tonal and pacing change when it switched to NBC. A few other fun things along the way. In early 2020, uh, Quebec media giant Quebecor uh, adapted the series for French-Canadian audiences and its streaming platform, Clébilico, called Esquad Neuf Neuf, set in Quebec City, and it drew criticism from fans as well as Melissa Fumera herself for the fact that Diaz and San- Santiago's counterparts were played by white women. Um, I love this little bit of trivia um, because for the whole reason that the budget of the whole season was equivalent to the budget of a single episode of the American version. Oh, Canada. <laughs> Canadian TV. I... Yeah. <laughs> it's just, if you look TV. up the poster for it, if you look up the poster for it, it looks like, um, I know, that I think the term is mockbusters, like that kind of cottage industry of like, you know, 
fake Marvel movies and stuff. It really looks like oh my um, god, just a it's a Kmart Brooklyn Nine Nine. Like the the Diaz uh, surrogate, despite not being Latina, she looks like um, a bad Diaz Halloween costume. Oh my god! I'm 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 sorry. I'm just having such a reaction right now because this is <laughs> like. <laughs> It's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've fallen into like a weird alternate universe. Like I feel like this is uh you know the the Bernstein Bears thing. What's the the Mandela effect? That's that's what's happening. Yes. Like I think I'm in a world where this was Brooklyn 99 all along. <laughs> So also worth noting uh, for the history of Brooklyn Nine-Nine or the awards, it's won two Golden Globe Awards for acting and best television series, musical or comedy, two Creative Arts Emmys for its stunt coordination, um, and additional five Creative Arts nominations, five Primetime Emmy nominations uh, for acting, all Andre Brower, one SAG nomination, a handful of like Teen Choice, People's Choice Awards. I love that. I love also that Teen Choice and People's Choice are different because it implies <laughs> that teens aren't people. Um, <laughs> satellite Awards and and then some representation-based awards such as NAACP Image Awards and GLAAD Media Awards. So that's Brooklyn Nine-Nine uh, from the history. And now we're going to uh, get into our feelings and starting with the Kafkaand aspect because mm. that's really going to color everything here. So I've tried to keep my feelings succinct because I love a good essay, but we don't want one of my essays right now. <laughs> um, and I don't want to say something that everyone's already heard from me, but I think it's really, really, really hard, even if you like the show, to not see Brooklyn Nine-Nine as propaganda. And on the one hand, there are a lot of shows and movies I like that are propaganda because the way they portray cops and policing as this inherently virtuous, like, well-meaning thing. Like, um, Silence of the Lambs, which is also super transphobic, but, like, it's ridiculously pro-FBI cop propaganda, um, but it's also, you know, a movie that really, like, sparked my love of suspense and stuff. Or I was thinking, I love... Breaking Bad so much but like the war on drugs is portrayed as an inherently good thing in Breaking Bad and like the DEA are heroes so there's a lot of propaganda <laughs> out there I, I think that uh yeah there's kind of this almost short form in television of like that man is a cop therefore he's a good person like even mm -hmm. in shows that aren't like inherently about cops or like aren't set in in the policing world um yeah the idea like, that like Dewey Riley in in Scream, that's kind of one example I think. Like that's a default cop is nice. Dewey in Scream, yeah, cops cops are good people. You know, like if you're dating a cop, it means you're dating someone with like a good job that you should want to date. And it's just and I've seen that specifically in Blech. a lot of shows, and I'm just like that's an interesting take on things. But uh, go yeah. off, I guess. Big yuck. <laughs> um, so yeah, what I like. When I say, like, there's a lot of soft propaganda out there, I really mean that, like, it's really hard to say, like, don't watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine because it's propaganda in the sense that, like, there's so much, like you said, it's just kind of embedded in pop culture. Um, so what I've tried to tell myself, is, and, like, ra yes, I'm rationalizing liking something problematic, but is... Um, and you don't have to tell me about rationalizing liking something pro uh, problematic because we like hockey. Like, um, <laughs> but like, I always try to tell myself like this show or this movie exists in a fictional universe where cop is a neutral position. It is a fantasy world 
where like a character like Holt can decide he wants to change things from the inside and that's what you do. We know in the real world that making change from the inside is really like a lost cause with policing, but I can tell myself that you know what in this this is a work of fiction. It's true. Go go Holt. The problem I have with that then is that and especially since season 4 Brooklyn Nine-Nine tries to have its cake and eat it too. Because whenever I get into discussions about, like, this is propaganda, whether or not you like it as propaganda, everyone always says the season four episode, Moomoo, like, oh, well, remember the episode where Terry was stopped by a racist cop? (laughs) And yeah, that's a very, like, emotional episode. I think Terry Crews is great in that episode. But to me, that that is actually the ultimate, like, sign of the problem with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Because um, it kept kind of hitting on this point after that, which is like the Nine Nine are the only non crooked cops in New York, and so it wanted to point out the problems with policing, but it also wanted the cops in the Nine Nine to constantly be above it, and so it's playing both in this fantasy world where these cops are good, but also the real world where all cops are. So like, it's, it's talking uh, outside of both sides of its mouth. It's ACAB except us. Uh, well, That's what they were saying. ACAB except us. One hundred percent, and uh, it, it's really funny to to watch it, especially in the eighth season, and uh, the 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 pure fantasy of uh, as it goes more and more into the like corruption of policing as an institution, the more it's like hilariously improbable that somehow every single like person who went into policing for the right reasons and who actually is a good cop and who's one of the good ones they somehow all just ended up in the single squad all of them not a single bad apple among the bunch like it's Mm -hmm. it's really funny even hitchcock and scully are good guys (laughs) like like the more they try to engage with the reality of what policing is the more insane the entire like idea of the nine nine becomes like the more unhinged like the more detached from reality it becomes very much so and it's a show that can't decide what it wants to be after that um and on the note of the final season um while it was a satisfying ending i have a problem with the way they use the rosa leaves the force uh kind of plot like because it was like they brought that element in in the cold open of the first episode to prove like oh they're not kidding around about their response to police brutality And I think that's great. I think Rosa was a good choice for the character who did that because I think she is, besides maybe Holt, she's the best character. She had really good development and she was the one character who seemed to have the most like grounded in reality morals. Um, But I then have a problem with the fact that she still shows up in every episode and they find every excuse to bring her around and literally have her in the precinct all the time. Like by the last episode, she's literally in the briefing room with them. And her being a PI only comes up in the first episode. It would have been so much cooler to have a plot, like a seasonal thread where she's almost like a rival to the Nine-Nine. But instead, in the first episode, it's kind of resolved as like, we can disagree with our views on policing, but we can still be friends. And so like... Her opposition to policing, I was expecting to be this huge thread throughout the season, and they really drop it. Um, That said, the episode where they go to the cabin and she's high on gummies because she can't, uh, because she can legally have pot gummies now, is some of the best Rosa moments in (laughs) in the series. But yeah, like I was so disappointed. I felt like they gave Rosa this really important arc and then just abandoned it. 100%. And I actually, I also had an alternate uh, 
idea for the last season to present, which I think they should have gone with be- just because of the way that they opened the, the season with like Rosa being like, I can't deal with what policing is anymore. I'm leaving. And so what I thought the season should be was that it was an exploration of basically everybody's last straw. Like, because yeah. all you can think throughout and I the episode, thought they were going that direction. I think that would be so good. Like the the kind of like uh I don't want to put it. Um the the kind of fact that they keep coming keep trying to find ways to make policing anything but like inherently um corrupt throughout the season just like rings so false because they are also like they're presenting real facts about what policing is actually like. And mm. I don't know. I, the, what I thought it would have been great would be if, yeah, throughout the season, every single one of those characters hit a breaking point and quit one by one with Jake being the last person to kind of like stubbornly believe that you can make a difference from inside. And then that final episode could have been the moment that he was just kind of like, I'm the one who's had the least to lose this entire time. I'm the one who this, you know, institution is built for. And my staying in this is not helping anyone. It is just reinforcing the status quo. And I understand that. And I'm leaving too. Like, and yeah. that would have been the only reason to 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 engage with any of this from my perspective, mm-hmm. you know? I have a real legitimate theory because um, I think what you said like would have made a way more compelling season. I actually really thought they were at least going in that direction with Jake um, because Jake, like they a few episodes before the end, there was a thing where like he had this suspension because he didn't do something properly. And like he basically like Jake realized he was part of the problem yeah. with the with the way he handled that one case. Um it really, to me, built up like Jake was going to be leaving the force, which, spoiler alert, he does leave the force, but they explain it and instant, like, he's basic, or it was it was the Pontiac Bandit episode where he ended up kind of breaking the rules to help out the Pontiac Bandit, kind of showing that, like, he's not always just loyal to policing. And I thought that that was kind of cool, also because I love the Pontiac Bandit. I love... Uh, Doug um, Judy? Uh, yeah, I love Doug Judy. Doug Judy! Um, but... Um, <laughs> And so then season finale, he says he's retiring from the force, but then it's like, because I want to be a stay-at-home dad. That's and such a I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Cop and out. then that Holt <laughs> um Thank that you. Holt was, you know, supposed to be retiring in the previous episode, but then it becomes, well, I'm not retiring because I'm in uh I'm in this new, you know, make all cops good role. Cause I so I'm like, okay, they're building toward Jake leaving, they're building toward Holt retiring. The last episode and the fact that neither of those happened screamed rewrite. It really did. And because I think for that, for those two things to play true, even if it's not everyone, for those two very important characters to leave policing for the reason that policing is bad, that's taking a stance, an objective stance about police uh, policing and police brutality. And I do not think it would have flown on a major network. So it screams rewrite to me or that the writers were too chicken shit to actually do it because it, w- oh, it would have been so fucking good. I mean, I fully would believe that that was like the plan or at least a plan and that they were very strongly told that they couldn't do that. Like I would 100% believe that. Um 
But I think there's something about that last season that is is so interesting in light of especially having seen the earlier seasons um like more recently and uh the way that tr- they try to address the propaganda like of the previous seasons really I don't know there's something about it because they throughout especially the early seasons there are so many jokes that basically hinge on things like police brutality or just like that cops are justified in what they're doing because like you know there's we have an entire episode this is the one that I think about all the time when I think about like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and propaganda I think we even talked about it when you had uh written uh your essay about Brooklyn Nine-Nine but it's the episode it's very early on uh where Jake arrests a man without any evidence because he's just gone uh yeah he's just gotten out of prison and then there was a like jewelry heist that had his mo and jake just straight up arrests him uh without any evidence and so they have uh 48 hours in which to hold him to collect evidence which like first of all uh that 48 hours is not for you to like then create your entire case it is for you to tie up your case before anything else uh but the Mm. kind of like central tension of that episode is just kind of like Jake you're gonna let this obviously guilty man go because you didn't like wait long enough and also you're inconveniencing your like co-workers that was the yeah yeah (laughs) and like they really they they really I mean unsurprising because a it's a comedy and b it's a comedy about cops but one of the things is if you're being held illegally for 48 hours um it's not just this guy sitting comfy in uh in an interrogation room like he is probably being denied going to the bathroom he is probably being denied good food like that's just the reality of it and i'm not like i'm not saying you have to show it in all its grittiness but I am saying, then why did you choose this to make a comedic plot out of? You know, there are other fucking things you could yeah. have done. Because like um, yeah. Jake there, isn't yeah. Jake isn't shown as being necessarily in the right in the sense of like, you know, he it, it's it's he shouldn't have done that. But obviously, he's a good policeman and he was right about it the entire time. And yeah. you know, like rewarded the problem is he was by being like, right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of happens throughout. There's even things like just like defense attorneys are literally the enemy, and all of them are oh my god themselves criminals. That's a thing that I think more people need to talk about when we talk about propaganda, because defense attorneys are frankly probably the most moral kind of attorney. Um, Also, people act like public defenders are the like. So a uh, fun fact about me is that I wanted to be a lawyer when I was younger. I mean, I've always wanted to be a journalist, but I knew that I was going to make no money. Um, <laughs> so um, I really prepared hard to like take the steps I needed and get the credits I needed to go to law school. And if being a journalist didn't work out, I gave myself a year and then it's like, okay, I'm going to try to get into, into law school. And I was looking at like, what could I make as this kind of lawyer versus this versus this? A public defender makes such shitty money. Like, and it is the actual, and there's a few references throughout Brooklyn Nine-Nine that cops don't make a lot of money, which, which is a bullshit. Fucking bullshit. Yeah. Oh my God. Bullshit. Ruby and I were yelling about this just earlier today. It's just yeah. like, there's, 
There's that bit in the last season where uh, Jake pays Rosa like two thousand dollars to for a picture of Holt's tattoo, and and she takes it because she like is making shit money as a PI, um, and is taking mm. mostly pro bono cases, and he and everyone like Amy's like, what are you doing? He's just like, I need to get that money back, and I'm just like, dude, you make so much more money than Rosa. You make so much yeah. more money than the average person. Like, fuck off. By the way. If I don't say it enough, all unions are good except police unions. Um, <laughs> so, um, which uh, also, this kind of is a good segue into one of the reasons why I think a lot of, I'll say, you know, my, my favorite term lately, good little liberals uh, don't necessarily recognize the copaganda aspect of Brooklyn Nine-Nine as easy, or they didn't pre-2020, um, is, um, uh, is the identity politics aspect of it. And um, now, I'll start by saying that when it comes to represent and representation and identity politics, like I do find people can be in one of two camps. There's either representation is everything or mm-hmm. representation is meaningless if the politics aren't correct. And as someone like, yes, I am a bisexual neurodivergent woman, but like so is everyone on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I still ultimately... <laughs> Look at my Twitter followers. We're all bisexual I mean, from, neurodivergent I've, women. From uh, from the sample size that I have, you're absolutely right. <laughs> what up? We're all friends. We, we just all know each other. It's like being from a small town. Oh, my friend's a bisexual neurodivergent woman. Do you know her? Oh, actually, yes. Um, so, um, but yeah, ultimately, I'm a married white professional woman so i don't necessarily have a huge stake in the race of whether or not representation is net good or bad i can say you know speaking to individual aspects of it like the episode where rosa comes out to her parents was very very special to me as a bisexual woman who took until she was 30 to come out to her mom um but then i also think for example like melissa fumero being so angry about the lack of a Latina representation for the Quebec version makes me think like you really need to work very hard to make a coherent argument about why it's empowering to see a Latina woman as of all things a police officer um, and to catch people up on what the public service is like in Quebec if you are employed in the public service in Quebec you are forbidden from wearing any outward religious symbols so you cannot wear a hijab uh, burqa or niqab you cannot wear a turban if you're Sikh you can, um, crucifixes are fine for oh some reason um, but yeah so like I it's it's a weird thing of like is this really the space that you want to be fighting for representation for to begin with I think you can kind of ask that about all of Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a whole like it, it's just you know is is any of this you know i i love a lot of these characters i do think that yeah. some of the storylines that they explore with them are really important but like all of mm-hmm. that is undermined by the fact that it is done in the context of a cop show <laughs> like straight yeah, up and um absolutely and like a really good example i think cuz this is something again if you were on tumblr at the time people on tumblr shit their pants over this in a good way sometimes shitting your pants can be good um when in the season four like premiere um when jake made that quip about ace ventura was one of his favorite movies as a kid because it only gets blatantly transphobic near the end and everyone's like oh my god he called ace ventura transphobic like you would have thought andy sandberg had just walked on water and made all college tuition free um and it's like 
yes, that's that's good to say that transphobia is bad. I will never say that it's a bad thing to say that transphobia is bad. But has the show ever cast a trans person to play a part? Um, and also one of the things, now this isn't necessarily a direct line to trans people, but when if you live in the real world, it is. More than a few times, the show makes um, sex workers into punchlines. 100%. And frankly, a, there are a lot of trans people and trans women and trans femmes who work as sex workers. And I can't think of, like, besides maybe fat people, I think the next group that is most punched down on in, by the show is sex workers. She so. did. Uh, and uh, with, uh, with specifically all the fat phobia, they did like tone it down significantly and it did just kind of go away after a time mm. um at, at least as far as i remember i'm sure there were still aspects yeah. of it at i mean the there's blatant. a lot of like sc- there's a lot of scully and hitchcock are gross jokes but a lot of it frankly is seemingly mainly that they do gross things which they do um but uh so one thing, because I'm being so negative about the show right now, I want to give the show credit for one identity-adjacent uh, thing, and it's um, the positive uh, portrayal of adoption. Um, I think it's really special that Charles adopts an older child. And a uh, fun thing, because when they first introduce it... Wait, I gotta stop. Helen, you speak Russian. Can you confirm that Nikolaj with a hard J is not a name that actually exists? It's Nikolai. It is. It is. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not a name. <laughs> So the joke about how they pronounce his name is so stupid because it's like, shouldn't someone have researched this? Like, I speak very basic Russian and I'm like, this this name doesn't exist. I'm sure of it. I am sure of it. It does not. I mean, he's supposed to be like, like Latvian, the name itself, the, uh, like, I think the original, uh, uh, like etymology of it is like Dutch, but like, no, no one says it Nikolaj. Mm. They don't. I mean, I'm sure some yeah. like one person out there does, but it's not how yeah. anyone would read that name. Not at all. But no, when he's first introduced, they're like he's four, and then you see the child is like this child is clearly like six or seven. Um, and so <laughs> they do actually age him up in future seasons, which is good. Um, I think Nico is the cutest character. He's such a sweet character. Um, I have a huge problem with the episode where Ike Barinholtz plays his biological dad and. Jake gets the guy deported. He literally calls ice on a guy. But um, the episode also has a good message at the end about how, like, when, like, in the end, if you're adopted, birth parents are still your parents. And if Nico wants to make the decision to reconnect with him and view him as his dad as well, like, that's a valid thing and part of healing. So, like, the show portrays adoption very well. And so I can I can at least uh, say that's a nice aspect. I think I think that is an important message uh, to have as someone who I've been going through a lot of like TV, you know, revisits as someone who's been watching a lot of Glee lately. Um, the way that Glee specifically uh, talks about ad- adoption is like, even like surrogacy, there's like a whole thing where just like your surrogate is like your mom, and if you don't have a relationship with your surrogate, then like there's some you know there's you're gonna have a hole in your life, and like you know Quinn giving up her baby, um, and then immediately being like our baby was stolen from us, and we need to set up we need to set up her uh, current adoptive mother with a like for a crime and then get our baby back and there's just like i i feel like 
definitely what Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like how it approaches adoption is better than Mm. just so much of what's out there. But I feel like it's none of it's good either on the part of like how it portrays adoption on the adopted family's side or on the birth family's Mm. side. Not at all. Um, so back into um, back into critical territory. This is my most controversial opinion on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Has nothing to do with identity. Has nothing to do with cops. I kind of hate Jake <gasps> as a lead character. I know, I know, he's a non canonically bisexual icon. Um, but it's um, I think they just and I'm interested in your perspective, having skipped a couple seasons, because I feel like they took Jake too far in the realm of obnoxiousness. And um, another essay I wrote on Medium is about like character development. Like with Parks and Rec and the way they essentially rewrote Chris Pratt's character to become more likable, but then people called that character development. It's like, no, they rewrote him. He's a new person. And so completely different character. Yeah. So Jake starts off as this cocky detective who has an immature streak, you know, he's really uh, insecure and dedicated. At a certain point, and I think the point was like after he got together with Amy, the immaturity and the petulant became the immature streak became petulance and whining, and that became the dominant part of his personality. And that is really grating if you don't like it. I think you're right, and I think it's uh, very. I mean, it's it's every sitcom ever when the will they won't they slanderization. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the will they won't they being resolved that like I think is the death of so many comedies out there i mean mm-hmm. i'm thinking specifically yeah. of like how much jim and pam in in the office were which like looking back on it there's a lot of problems with them but after they got together it was uh you know like it really was a problem and uh i think you're right in terms of the like the time skip uh or like the, the season skip that i've <laughs> experienced being an interesting insight into it because I stopped watching basically right after Jake and Amy got married and then came back to it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I guess like right after they had a kid and it was, I don't know. I feel like this is the kind of way I see it happen on every show where there's like a main couple that you're supposed to root for is that, at some point, the obvious, they have to get married and then they have to have kids pretty soon after. And then, um, you know, a lot of the times, all of the, like, female characters, uh, like, storylines kind of get relegated to, like, and she's trying to be a mother or, like, and she's got, like... She's trying to do it all. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was less of that in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but it was definitely still, like... Mm there's definitely a a lack of energy to i guess the portrayal of those two characters and a tendency to mm. fall back on like very specific like cartoonish character traits of theirs to try to like yeah figure out what these two characters could possibly want or do with their lives now that like the obvious thing of getting them together is is done and neatly tied up The interesting thing is, like, you're right, like, Jake lacks a clear I want after, I think Amy does as well. There's an aspect of Amy's personality as a character that they abandon long before, I think even before halfway through the first season. When she's introduced by Terry, he says, like, oh, yeah, she's got seven brothers. She's always trying to prove she's tough. 
that doesn't become what her personality is. Her personality becomes she's annoyingly type A and wants to be the best at everything, but like trying to be tough and stuff. Like there is nothing related to her trying to overcome anything, trying to overcome any fears. And so she just kind of hits the same note over and over again. Like I have no problem with showing character growth um, and Jake does grow, um, but what I hate is when like they hit a beat over and over to show, look how much they've grown. Like um, by the third or fourth season, we knew Jake had a dorky side by the fifth and sixth season. Every five minutes was Jake's a dork, Jake's a dork, Jake's a dork. Um, and for the record, I think the second character that they did that the most was with, was with Holt. Um, now I, Holt is my favorite character. Um, like, in the first few seasons, everyone knew it was funny when Holt expressed like a sudden burst of emotion. I think then they just started doing it too often. Like there was one Andre Brower yell per episode. You have to sprinkle that stuff in. Um, it didn't make me hate Holt as much because I think Holt is just a better character and Andre Brower is amazing. But like, that's why I feel like you can skip two seasons of that show, especially, you know, six and seven are great ones because it's really the same beats over and over. 100%. Uh, actually, when I told uh, Ruby, my partner, that I was going to be on Peak Show, we started talking about uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and her take was uh, the show peaked for her uh, when they when Holt stopped having like these kind of goofy moments and it became just like a regular thing to the point where the character stopped having as much of that like very serious center because the the seriousness then became like a way to like exaggerated to the point of its own type of goofiness and while that there was there mm. in the first season you know you could still take the seriousness seriously to some extent i guess is the best way yeah to like I never believe anymore that he is truly mad at Jake because he gets it like, it used to be like, you're not wearing a tie and I find that unprofessional or you're not being a team player or you arrested a guy with insufficient evidence. Like that's bad. Instead, it becomes like, Peralta, you use the, the wrong, you know, you um, you compose the sentence incorrectly and your grammar's atrocious. Like it's too cartoonish. Um, and so you either have Holt you know, although I think Holt wearing the little Paddington outfit was actually really funny, but I was trying for something and it didn't work. Um, so you either have that overly silly side or you have the cartoonishly serious side. And it's I think what saves that is Andre Brower's delivery, his timing, his tone of voice. Like he's and so he's perfect. So for it. good is the thing. He's like he so can make good. you buy anything. But like do him a favor and and take the character as seriously as he does, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, so I, I got to ask, do you like Gina? It's a tough question. It really is. I've been trying <laughs> to think about it since since seeing it on this doc, and I, I, I think I agree with you. I know you said that you like Chelsea Peretti a lot more than Gina. Um, yeah, yeah, and, she's great, and I think she is great. I think her delivery of Gina's lines is incredible. I, you know, when I was looking for how to introduce myself for uh, at the beginning of this episode, I didn't look any further than just a bunch of Gina lines because why would I ever need to? Um, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, uh, the the one I was considering and rejected, but I do want to say is I am a higher level of being like her from the movie Her. 
I have a really nice framed poster of that movie in my basement. <laughs> it's the... I love Joaquin Phoenix having sex with an OS. It's a great, great movie. Um, but yeah, like... I mean, during her better times, Gina is awesome, and she's the only character that, even before season four points out, cops suck. Like, the way she says, like, when when her house or when her apartment gets robbed, and she's like, you guys didn't make me feel safe. You guys were dicks to me. And, like, you guys, like, holy crap, I'm just realizing that the way that, like, this department is run is terrible. Um, or, like, uh, when she points out this PR campaign for the cops is really stupid because you like everyone hates cops. You're not going to make them like cops anymore. So I think that's great. I also think she's such a mean spirited character and the creators obviously love her a lot because by the fourth or fifth season, a lot of plots revolve around her always being correct. And I can't stand that when a sitcom does that Mm. to any character. I think I can see like as a as someone who's a writer myself, I can totally understand where she would be like a blast to write for. But there's mm-hmm. definitely yeah. uh in terms of her being mean-spirited, there's one moment that honestly like hurt me, like hurt my soul a little bit. And and it's like such a throwaway moment. I don't think anyone else like felt this way about it, but it's when um the their great like her and uh holtz you know like her i guess uh step grandmother dies and leaves her the mother doe and uh she tells boyle that he can have it for ten thousand dollars and like literally the way that he shows up and he just like brings the money and then he's just like and if you think you can get more money out of me you're right and like here's two thousand dollars more and i'm just like (laughs) it it, it's just like there's something really upsetting to me about like extorting your friend for money your your friend slash like stepbrother for money for like a family heirloom (laughs) (laughs) yeah um the way she treats charles is so so bad because like i i actually and we'll come to this surely um charles is kind of one of my favorite characters he's not he's no holt or rosa but i feel like charles is a real like unsung hero of the show because he represents the opposite of gina he represents this like childlike hope and um he is so unconditionally good but to the point where that's his biggest flaw um and also i love that this that his dad is steven root this is a pro steven root podcast we love steven root um (laughs) but yeah um i think he like doing it to charles and the like because I think every show has a character who, like, you don't want to see anything bad happen to because they're kind of the innocent. Well, like, they even say in community, like, we can't hurt Abed. He's our innocent. (laughs) Um, That's Charles. And so the fact that um, Charles is the most frequent target of of Gina's taunts, maybe Amy as well, um, but I don't particularly like Amy as a character. Um, That's, I know, I know, I, like over uh, word vomity type a person don't like amy it's it's bad um for me peak gina and i think this is either the episode right before or the episode right after because i know it was around the time when chelsea peretti was very obviously pregnant and they were trying so hard to hide it um (laughs) although nothing the way they tried to hide melissa fumero being pregnant was really really blatantly bad um i love spotting when shows are trying to hide a pregnancy 
Um, but peak Gina, we, we talk in peaks on this show. Peak Gina was during that same uh, period as the mother doe, her fighting with Terry over the space heater because it went to this like really cartoonish level. She was on fire. She was wearing that big ball gown that set on fire. (laughs) And also the ultimate message of that plot was if you bully someone enough, it's actually good for them. As you frequently say on on, um, Real Good Pros, bullying works, but um, (laughs) we're not serious about it. Yes, Um, it is. It is a joke, generally, except for when it's hockey players. I stand by it. But (laughs) can we bully William Nylander into shaving his goatee? If William Nylander still has his goatee by the time this episode comes out, I will just sit in the middle of Highway 24 until my life ends. Um, but yeah, so I was really glad that she left the show shortly after that because I just got sick of the message always being like, Gina is always right, especially when she was at her meanest. Yeah, it's hard to look at a character like Gina and then put her at the center of that kind of narrative. For me, it's, it's, yeah. That is a character who exists to, like, sow chaos and, uh, you know, get off amazing one-liners. Like, you can... And, and, you know, sometimes have moments where she shows heart. But I think that the, like, meaner you make her, the harder it is to, like, also make her always right and also make her have moments of heart that feel real in any way mm-hmm. oh. yeah um i think a lot of her purpose kind of weirdly got picked up by um different as like split between hitchcock and scully in a way they weren't <laughs> nearly as clever as her but like hitchcock had always been the di- more dickish one of the two but he became slightly more of a dick after because you needed someone who could have that like kind of snarkiness um and uh yeah just a more stupid version of gina i actually love scully though i think scully was like i just always wanted to give him little hugs (laughs) i thought he was a very pure in heart character he he had uh something to his delivery that was just like very cute of a lot of his lines one of my favorite things and i i find myself saying variations of this to my husband all the time when um when the she scully Cindy Shat Cindy Shat says it was nice to meet you and he just goes why because <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel all the time and everyone's like oh Brie it was really nice hanging out with you why like oh, someone's like oh I'm I'm so excited to be on Peak Show why ah <laughs> uh, so great. Helen welcome <laughs> I'm uncomfortable but I'm learning to at least say thank you um, <laughs> welcome to my favorite part of Peak Show, the lightning round. And for season two, the lightning round is in every episode. So I'm super excited. Are you ready? I Yeah. I guess. Ten questions in quick succession. I guess. Which staff member of the 9-9 do you identify most with? Uh, probably Jake, honestly, unfortunately. Oh, no! <laughs> I don't hate you. Can you explain why? <laughs> uh, yeah, the obvious undiagnosed ADHD is a big part of it hilariously the character i would say second is avi so you really i feel like if avi and jake's kid grows up uh it it will become me it's like the slight 
slight type A tendencies and love for organization, um, but with the chaos imbued by the now diagnosed ADHD. But it's just kind of like if, yeah. if I'm someone who loves spreadsheets and also can't remember to fill one out to save my life unless I suddenly hyper focus on it. So like that's mm-hmm. I fall right in the middle between the two of those. So I get told a lot that I'm a Terry, and I hate that because I think Terry Crews is the most obnoxious person. Although I think Terry's a fine character. Yeah. Um, I get told a lot that I'm a Terry, and I think it's just because I really love the gym and I've got, <laughs> you know, underlying body issues and prone to yelling. Um, I would say I'm, I'm a Charles because I ha- am... I am not always aware of social norms um, and very way overly sensitive really in my feelings all the time and like not ashamed of being overly emotional um but i think like like charles i think the world needs to learn to deal with him instead of him learning to deal with the world (laughs) so yeah i'm a charles baby um i don't like a lot of weird food um, i was about to ask i don't eat animals yeah Yeah. but how often do you say i don't eat animals that's that's my other question um a lot, but they're always referring to my plants. Um, <laughs> okay, that's allowed. I think that's but, allowed. Um, I we do because of the show say Tang Town a lot. That's Tang Town. Um, <laughs> okay, who is your favorite one-time guest star? Oh, geez. Um, I really liked uh, Nick Offerman as uh, Holt's ex. Mm. That was that was great. That was. Pe- that was a good one. That was a peak for me That's right there. <laughs> yeah. So this answer is the horniest side of me. Uh, Sterling K. Brown in The Box. I think The Box is also a really good episode, and it is a better version of that horrible first season episode we talked about, um, where Jake arrests a guy with insufficient evidence. Um, he does make one bad mistake of telling the guy that he has evidence that he doesn't. But um, I think Sterling K. Brown is the most handsome actor in America. Um, I love This Is Us. It's This Is Us. My love of This Is Us is like the girliest side of me. Um, (laughs) And my love of Sterling Brown is the girliest side of me. Um, But it's also that if you watch This Is Us or um, have ever watched it, his character is the total opposite of Randall. Uh, which is obviously what he's best known for. And it's the sequence where he's like, look at look at your friend. Look at now say his name. Now say his full name. Now say it without blinking. And like um he he delivers. Alright, who's your favorite recurring guest star? Oh. Um hmm. I mean, uh I, I don't remember the actor's name, but Doug Judy episodes are always probably my favorite craig robinson hey uh, yeah those are great episodes i love craig robinson he just seems like such a nice man <laughs> um, um i would say uh in a similar vein nicole byer as trudy judy uh since she does come back a second time but also um i really think it goes to bradley whitford as jake's dad as captain roger peralta i love him um it's it's fun to see him so bumbling and sitcom especially just like when he comes into the Thanksgiving dinner not wearing pants or Jake, I cut my thumb off again. Like he's such a he's such a weirdo and I love him. I still um, he's been in tons of other things, but I still always just think of him 
as uh, as Josh from uh, like West Wing. And it's so funny the kinds of roles that I see him in now because it's it's very different. Oh, he's fucking chilling in Get Out. Um, <laughs> so that's, but I will say this this should tell you everything. Like I know I always say on the show, I was a little comedy nerd. I liked the West Wing growing up, but I knew him entirely as Eric from Billy Madison. So (laughs) him and the like, I, oh man, it poisoned the West Wing for me. Um, Okay. We've talked a lot about character development. Which core cast, uh, which core character do you think had the best development? Um, I think, I think you're probably going to agree with me and that it's Rosa I think it's kind of been yes yeah absolutely <laughs> I think it's hard not to not to think that when she you know quits the 9-9 in yeah. the last season if nothing else but also I think that you know her getting going from this kind of like one note like police brutality joke to a character that has like a lot of heart and um you know the softer side that they reveal i think in a lot of ways that mm-hmm. that really get to you i i just yeah. really like her also i just love I Stephanie Beatrice, actually, beatrice so like yeah she's beautiful she's so beautiful like inside and out um i think also she is the one character that like every other character gets really flanderized and taken up to 11. She actually kind of gets deflanderized. You're right. She starts out super one note. And like, the only thing about her is Charles has a crush on her, which I was really glad that they rewrote that. But also they took it in such a lovely direction because it became that he was such a good friend to her and so supportive of her. Um, Like they add in a few cartoony things about Diaz throughout, like the fact that she like, one weird running joke is that she's like lived a million lives before becoming mm-hmm. uh, a cop. Like she went to medical school and went to business school and has a pilot's license and stuff. And was a trained classical dancer. Yes. Um, it's And I love that. Be still my heart. Um, <laughs> love picturing Stephanie Beatrice in a ballet class. Um, but yeah, like she becomes so vulnerable and stuff. And it is like the entire show is about her learning to open up to people. So yeah, I... I'm glad we're on the same page. I think Rose is wonderful. On that note, are you pro or anti-Adrian Pimento? Because he is very polarizing to fans. Uh, I am, okay, I'm pro Adrian Pimento as a character to exist on the show. I am anti-Adrian Pimento being anywhere near Rosa or her romantic life. (laughs) Final answer. (laughs) I, yeah. I love Jason Mansukas. I get excited anytime I see him in anything. Um, it's always funny when I watch Parks and Rec and remember like, oh, he was like kind of a nothing comedian when he did his first like guest star on this like, uh, and now he's super in demand. Um, I think he plays him so well. I think he is in that show exactly as much as he needs to hmm. be. I was really glad they didn't make him a like a permanent cast member because it really did look like they were going to do that for a while. I like that he just kind of started popping up once a season. That is exactly as much as I can take. I think that's right. He has such a like concentrated, chaotic energy about him that you really, you don't need a lot to get a lot out of it, you know? And Mm -hmm. that's a big part of also why I don't think he should have been with Rosa because even at the point where uh, they started dating, I think she'd already 
they'd already started to kind of, you know, un un uh, unwrap the onion, you know, go down in the layers of the onion that is this this has gotten away from me. But Rosa has had started <laughs> to be like a little bit more of a person, but then trying to have her show vulnerability in relation to Adrian Pimento was such a weird move because he was yeah. such a like like such a ball of chaos of a character that having like real human emotions about him felt very strange to me. And he didn't make her a better character. No. That's the other thing. He didn't make her more interesting. But he is a source of one of my favorite types of comedy, which is something that is incredibly weird, but also unexplained. Like they don't like I really think a lot of comedy dies when you try too hard to explain the joke. Absolutely. Um and Pimento, like it, one of the first episodes with him when he's staying at Jake's and it's like, why are you doing Tai Chi in your underwear? Well, I can't have them off, Jake, because then you'd be looking right at my penis. <laughs> and so, like, it doesn't explain why he's doing it, but he thinks it's explaining it. So, yeah. Um, and there I am explaining the joke. Um, what is your favorite, favorite end of season cliffhanger, which the show is famous for? Uh, they do like their cliffhangers. Uh, honestly, I think the first one probably worked the best for me in terms of it I think it was the best time they could pull it off without it being like so over the top because the more of those they had the more I was just like how could all of this happen to a single like group of people and I know it's a like half hour comedy please don't come at me yeah. it's like at some point you have to give up the idea that this needs to be realistic but the first one was great yes. because you start to like have feelings about Jake and Amy. You want to see where that's going. Uh, and then suddenly that's like, and now he's going to be gone for a while. What will happen in the meantime? Also, I think that they set it up really well throughout the season. I think the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, Jake is breaking the rules all through the first season. You know, there's he's kind of clashing heads, like butting heads with Holt. And it kind of seems like, maybe he's starting to calm down towards the end and then you start the last episode with like him being like i'm jake peralta and i've just been fired from the nypd i love the setup and and you know you like you're pretty sure there's something going on but it's also yeah. just believable enough that you're just like what happened and you want to see how it resolves itself and like i think that was a great mm. like lead up to payoff kind of thing yeah well, now I feel like my answer's wrong because you made a really compelling case for that. Um, <laughs> I will say I do like one of the slightly more cartoony ones. I like the one where it ends with them having to go into witness protection, mainly because that last sequence of episodes dealing with um, dealing with Jimmy the Butcher Figus, I think, is um, a really good sequence of episodes. Mm. It's really good tension. Um, and it's a really interesting swerve at the end because you know like it can't be simple to solve it. I also just think it lays the ground really well for um, the opening of the fourth season. I think the Florida arc is really good. It I lasts agree. just as long as it should. Um, I, I love... Um, it's... <laughs> This is this is obviously in the fourth season, but Holt dancing and while well, I do a dance to your name, Derek. Like that's gonna sound terrible on Mike. Um, yeah, it, it sets it up really well. But the other thing is, them like, okay, we live in Florida now. If the worst had happened and that show hadn't been renewed, it would be a really, really bonkers series finale. Oh my god! So yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm so excited about this because you're going to hear me get really gay. Um, what outfit or style do you think you could rock the most? Terry suspenders, an Amy pantsuit, a Jake hoodie and plaid shirt un uh, under a leather, leather jacket, or a Holt blue peacoat and red hat. And I'm purposely leaving a Rosa leather jacket off this list because I know you would rock the hell out of that. Thank you, first of all. Second of all, uh, to channel my inner Gina, which I apparently have, I would look amazing in all of these outfits. But, <laughs> but um, I think a hoodie and plaid shirt under a leather jacket is, I'm pretty sure I've yeah. worn that, in fact. Probably. Um, so when I was first working in the entertainment district and I had very short hair and I was really into my kind of like soft mask style, um, I tried suspenders for a while. They look so fucking stupid on me. They look so fucking stupid on me. I have a really high waist. So as it turns out, wearing suspenders just made me look like a very skinny Humpty Dumpty. Um, but um I actually believe that I could rock a Holt blue pea coat and a red hat. I, I, I'm a vintage bitch. I, I love a good cozy that. coat. I fully believe that. You'd look great. <laughs> now, asterisk, it would have to be a child size hat because I can't wear adult size hats because I have a head the size of a baseball. No. You know, I also don't believe you that you couldn't rock suspenders. Like, I, I feel they, like you could. You're kind. You're kind to say that, but it looked so weird. I, like, put them on thinking I'm going to look so cool and mask and what. I, no, it didn't look good, like, at all. <laughs> mm. um, it's it's the high waist. I think I did. I, I forget when you moved to Canada, because did you watch Pokeru? Uh, I I mean I know what Pokeru is, but I was I, I he just had, missed the boat on that one. He had these. I'll send you a picture after, and you'll laugh a lot because he had these little kind of Humpty Dumpty friends that had very very long legs, and they all wore suspenders, and that's what I look like with <laughs> suspenders on. Um, okay, has there ever been a part of Brooklyn Nine Nine that made you cry? I don't think so. It's actually pretty hard for. TV to make me cry. Um, yeah, no. I, I think there's bits that came close. I think, uh, you know, parts of the, the Rosa arc, even things with uh, Holt, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. nothing, yeah, nothing that I can think of. How about you? Well, Helen, you and I are very different because I love crying. <laughs> I cry. My conservative estimate is that I cry about once a week. Uh, in my 20s, probably three to four times a week. Um, and not even because depression, just because I, I feel things. I'm, I'm a Charles. Um, I think actually for me, it was, um, it was Jake proposing to Amy. And I have to look this up and I'm not going to do it now, but I am pretty sure this was right after I got married. Like, I'm pretty sure this was fall 2017. This is right after I got married. And um, technically, Jared and I both made it through our vows without crying. But we came fucking close. Oh. And I I always cry at weddings. I think that summer, like, my brother got married. I got married. My favorite cousin got married. So, like, I was just... And weddings make me cry. And so as much as I knew it was such a sitcom-y thing, you know, these two characters have been brought to their natural conclusion of crying... 
or of, of getting married and me crying. Me crying <laughs> is a natural conclusion. Like, um, yeah, I was still so full of like happy hormones from my wedding that it really and and weirdly, I wasn't expecting it. So I, I yeah, tears welled up in my eyes. I will say okay, um, um, I didn't cry at this but one part that i had like very unexpected strong feelings about was uh jake talking about the moment that he decided that he was going to propose to amy or like the little flashback to her Mm. being like there's there's a there's like a typo in this crossword and his just like smile seems so you (laughs) that is so you and ruby the thing is that is so you and ruby i literally i told her this and and her response was it's because that's you and i'm just like i mean yes and it's nice to think that somebody would find it charming (laughs) oh i i mean i find it charming in a non-romantic way so i'm sure ruby finds it very charming too yes we love you ruby come on the pod um so okay what is the hardest you've ever cringed during brooklyn 99 god um I, it's really hard for me to like remember individual moments. I've, especially because I've been watching so much of it this week. Um, let me very quickly look down this list of, oh, you know, you know what it was? Uh, this was like a planned cringe, not like a, you know, the show itself is being cringy, but uh, when uh, Amy's uh, boring ex, whose name is completely... Teddy. Yes, when uh, when they reunite with Teddy and he takes them to a jazz brunch and then keeps, like, keeps proposing to Amy. Uh, <laughs> that was... That was like, like I said, it was like a a written in planned cringe, but it worked. It worked on me a lot. Mm. I'm going to share my favorite bit of trivia about Teddy, uh, because I know you are also a fan of Breaking Bad. We've had recent Breaking Bad discourse on Twitter. Um, Did you know that he has a very small part in an early season episode of Breaking Bad? He's the dick who cuts Walter off at like the bank and then he sees him again at the gas station. He's like on his cell phone and Walter blows up his car. Oh, yeah, he's like a finance bro. <laughs> and Walter blows up his convertible. I did not um, remember that. That's so funny. <laughs> it's it's great. Uh, no, the hardest I've ever cringed was an unintended cringe, and that was an entire episode of cringe. And it's the episode where Amy's brother comes, and he's played by none other than Lin-Manuel Miranda. I haven't and- seen it, but I've heard about this. <laughs> It's not good. It is not good. It's just, it's the worst aspects of Amy's character. It's Amy confusing like type A perfectionism with just being really competitive. And um, it's it's too cartoony. Um, it's also just nothing to me screams like 2016 Tumblr liber- liberal better than Lin-Manuel Miranda guesting on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, it's... I just, I think he's not particularly funny. I think he's a really talented creator. I don't think he's funny. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, like he, he is really good at being in the, in something that he gets to create, I guess is what I will say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And he is good at creating things, but this was not, you know, he, this was just him as an actor in an episode. 
It's a very different yeah. vibe. So lastly, what is your favorite Halloween heist? Oh, I really like the second one. I really is like- Is that the one where Rosa is in a sexy cat suit? Halloween! Yes, that is yeah. that is the one. I love that, uh, you know, it turns out that Holt engineered the entire thing. I love that everybody mm-hmm. betrayed him. Uh, I love Jake's reaction to being betrayed as I'm not going to turn me, I'm not going to lie, that turned me on a little bit, which is honestly a a very, like, you know, I get it, bro. (laughs) I really do. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. No, it was was really funny. And uh, I, I think that, like, I always really liked the, like, first return to a running gag, you know that, that that's a good point that's like you know like the first time it's fun the second time it's just like blows your mind because they're doing it again and then every time after that you're like a little bit worried that it's gonna jump the shark yeah i completely agree and for that reason my controversial opinion is that i came to dread the halloween heist episode um i think one of the only thing that i liked about later halloween heist episodes was bill I love Bill. Um, <laughs> I think he's just so fucking amazing as a character. Um, but I um, I think the Halloween heist got very, very exhausting. I'm really close to you, but I like the third one. Fair. Because um, it's still grounded in a bit more of like, you don't know what your expectations are. Um, and it's not trying too hard to go over the top, um, you know, with like, a bunch of handmaids walking in or anything or like literal explosions and stuff. Um, I also love it specifically because of the Andre Brower line delivery of, of course we're looking for Al, you imbecile. <laughs> like he's so fucking pissed off. Um, and, and it's a very, very satisfying conclusion. So yeah, that's my favorite Halloween heist. I know I said that I cried at the one where Jake proposed to Amy, but that was really the only good part of that one. Was that uh, that was actually yeah. also the season the episode where uh, Cheddar gets replaced, right? The proposal yes. one. I, You're I just will some say, common bitch. <laughs> You're just some common bitch. Did get me. I will. Say, I like that yeah. part and Jake proposing, but otherwise, I think, I think ultimately my favorite minor character is Cheddar. Like, <laughs> yes, Corgi's. Corgis are inherently funny. They don't even have to do anything and they're funny. Um, Okay, so Helen, uh, we've come to the peak. And uh, as I always say, peak could mean when you were the most into it, when it was the highest quality, when it was the most like itself. So what do you feel was the peak of Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I think for me, the the peak of... uh, in terms of when I think it was at its best is maybe the second season. Okay. Um, but in terms of when I think it peaked where like, I think it markedly went downhill, uh, would be sometime between the third and fourth. Okay. 
I think we're on a fairly similar page. When I thought of peak, I went for a particular episode um, and it sucks because whenever I do this, I always hope that the episode I have will be either in the middle or end of the season. This is at the very beginning of season four. Maybe not very beginning. It's what once they get back to from Florida and stuff. It is the episode CopCon. And mm. it is right after, it's right after the Moo episode, which I have a lot of problems with because for me, Moo represents a real schism in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Everything after Moo is the Nine-Nine trying to prove that they're the only good cops. And, and we, we, we talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the very next episode, it was so, it was much needed after the heaviness of Moo but it's literally, it's just a good sitcom-y. The cops are trying to throw a party. Uh, you know, we changed the setting, which is good. There's a lot of great jokes about Holt being boring and loving Rochester. Um, and I would go to a Fahrenheit I museum. Just, I just want to say that on the record, I would absolutely <laughs> go to a Fahrenheit museum. Thank you. <laughs> I would I would take you there. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think... There are, first of all, there are amazing jokes in that, like the Rosa, I wanted to, well, Diaz, why are you filling uh, an iron with tequila? I want to drink tequila steam. (laughs) Or uh, Charles doing a Jean-Claude Van Damme split between two hotel beds. (laughs) Like, um, the Andy Dick is great in that episode. But I just think to me, I would call that a peak because that was the last episode in which it just wasn't taking itself seriously. Um, and it was also the last episode in which I could forget it was a cop show. Um, and also, it uh, I loved the introduction of the Cindy Schatz character. Um, the way she kisses Scully and does the little, like, <laughs> rainbow hands. That's <laughs> I've done that to my husband. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it was, for some reason, that just represents, like, the last really wonderfully lighthearted episode of that series and it not taking itself too seriously so for me i don't even want to say it's a quality peak or anything but just like my love for that show for that show peaked and was never the same after CopCon. yeah yeah i totally get that so if you were to recommend the show to a friend who had for some reason never seen it um you know do you recommend watching it in its entirety chronological like or what i call remote roulette of like just pick an episode I think I think if you can get past the copaganda thing, um, which like if you're starting to watch Brooklyn Nine Nine now, I'm I'm assuming you already know what you're in for. Yeah. Uh I think if you if I was gonna say like, yeah, sure, like knowing that, start watching it, I'd just say watch from beginning to end. I, I still think there's a yeah. lot of like quality things throughout around the copaganda, and I think that there's things that make most episodes worth it for me. I agree. And I would say watch it chronologically because then when you decide it's not good, you can just leave and you're not really going to miss anything. Good point. I don't think after, I really don't think after um, CopCon, maybe the fifth Halloween heist when Jake proposes to Amy, but I don't think there's ever like an amazing episode after that. Um Whereas there are some really amazing episodes in the first three seasons. I would also, this sounds weird because I generally like the show. I would never recommend that anyone watch a, like just play remote roulette and watch a random episode. Because one of the things I've been asking a lot on Peak Show is like, how big is the gap between the best of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the worst of it? And I feel like 
while I can't point out any particularly really terrible episodes, I still think it's safe to say that like the gap between the best of it and the worst of it is really big. And if you were to like randomly land on a kind of shitty episode, like for me, I'd say actually the one where Ike Barinholtz plays uh, Nikolai's real um, or biological dad, um, that is... That is, I think, a terrible, terrible episode. Um, in or the one with Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think, is a really dumb, dumb B plot that drags the entire episode down. Um, so, so hmm. yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I actually, for the first time, maybe just not straight up disagree with you, but a little bit because when I was thinking about this, <laughs> when I was thinking about this question. My first instinct was to say, like, surprisingly not that big. And I would, I would still hold, hold, I would stand by that from an, on an episode to episode basis. I think that the gaps between the worst and the best of Brooklyn Nine-Nine are within episodes. Like, I think the, like, the worst B-plot versus the best B plot is a big jump. Mm. I think the best A plot versus the worst A plot is a big jump. But I think most episodes to me like balance out enough that like the very worst mm-hmm. episodes, they're they're definitely markedly worse, but they're not like there are much bigger jumps in some of the you know, the many unrelated shows I've brought up today, like Glee, like yeah. Community. There's just like Yeah. A very stark difference. Whereas with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I don't think there's any episode that I can at least point out right off the bat that's like like out and out terrible all the way through. There's nothing that I liked about it. Mm-hmm. I think you are so correct that I might have to change my mind a little bit because I think what you said, like within episodes, there's... except there's a but. Because I'm a roadie, so I can never fully admit that I was wrong. Um <laughs> My butt is that you didn't see season seven. That's true. And there were a few really bad stretches in season seven, in particular, the one where they tried to do the second Jimmy Jabs game. That one is so bad. Like you can't, you just can't follow anything. It's so scattered. It's too talky talky. And then the one right after that with the character of Debbie, who's a, she's just a season seven character, uh, where she goes on her big coke binge and takes Jake and Rosa hostage. Like it's such a weak plot. It's such a weak episode. So there are a lot of singularly bad episodes. A lot of them are in season seven. So um, season six apparently also is very hated. I don't particularly hate season six, but. Um, yeah, for I will say though that because you didn't see season six and seven, you are correct. Uh, if you saw season six and seven, you might feel different. Okay, yeah, I will. I, the, I yeah. definitely the caveat is that for the episodes I've actually seen, I have not seen the whole show. Yeah. I have, I did in preparation for this, uh, read the synopses of all of the episodes that I hadn't seen, and mm-hmm. I I will say some of them sounded just the worst kind of bonkers. So I'm fully willing to yeah. admit that they probably there are probably some really bad episodes in there. And kind of like, I mean, I have a problem with the fact that like, okay, you bring back the Halloween heist every season. Okay, I, I accept that. You have a Doug Judy episode every season. That's fine. Um, the fact that, what, five years after the first Jimmy Jab games, it's like, we want to recreate that magic. You're really reaching into the well for an episode that was really just 
it was fine, but it's like we're we're trying to bring back the jibby jabs, the <laughs> one like one off joke. So like I that to me, excuse me, I just had kombucha, so I've been holding back burps oh, no. for an hour. <laughs> um, uh, for me that represents like the depths of the sitcom. Well, so I especially um, when so that, the part of like what was going on in the Jimmy Jab was just everyone wasn't really doing their job, which is like fine for a workplace comedy, but for a show that's been more and more leaning into the fact that policing is terrible and policemen do nothing. It's very interesting when uh, you, yeah. <laughs> you engage with it in that way. Yes. Um, all right, so that just about does it for this episode of Peak Show. Um, I want to thank Helen so much for joining us uh, and talking on uh, talking Brooklyn Nine Nine with me. Now, if you are in Canada, where we live, the entire series is viewable on Netflix. If you're in the U.S., I want to say it's on Peacock because I think everything you love is on Peacock. So, uh, Helen, before we let you go, tell everyone again where they can find you, follow you, and uh, your various projects. For sure. So uh, uh, if you want to follow just me on Twitter, uh, you can find me at that silly Helen. Uh, Helen spelled H-E-L-E-N. I have never met someone who spells it differently, but people always try on my Starbucks order. So... Um, if you would like to hear some things about hockey, um, and a lot of things that are completely unrelated to hockey, but we talk about them on our hockey podcast anyways, uh, you can check out Real Good Pros. That's good with a U. So at Real G-U-D Pros, uh, also on Twitter or on Tumblr, um, and also on, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes, and I will say, because I am French and from a predominantly French town, um, every Helen I knew growing up, there was an E on the end. So That's fine. Um, That's allowed. But yeah. <laughs> so as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde, and I am so, so legitimately happy to be back for another season of Peak Show. We're coming at you with so much great content this season. Every two weeks, we've got episodes coming up on Taylor Swift, David Fincher, The Babysitter's Club, Final Destination, and more. You can also look through our back catalog for episodes on Judd Apatow, The Office, Radiohead, a whole month's worth of The Simpsons, and so much more. You can follow me on Twitter at Breganism, which is like veganism with a B-R-E-E. If you want to follow me on Instagram for pictures of my cat and food, that's Bree House of Horror, which is like Treehouse of Horror with a B-R-E-E. Uh, you can also follow the podcast, Peak Show, at Peak Show Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to rate and review us. Um, I have a real big goal to boost the visibility of this show this year. And uh, just in time, you can now rate on Spotify. So if you're not an Apple Podcast user, rate us on Spotify. That is only if you plan to give us five stars. Uh, special thanks to Jared Daly for our show logo and all of his art. Thanks to Jack Dump for our theme music. And thanks to you for listening. I've been Bree Rohde. And remember, meep, meep, sorp. Can you tell me a little bit about me and your podcast? <laughs> tell me a little bit about you and your podcast. <laughs> Jesus. Season two is going great. What would you like to hear about yourself? I, uh, we can start there.